I confess, after my son's third birthday party, we had an orgy in the rental moon bounce. <laughs> Jesus Christ! You I gotta step up my game at my kid's birthday party! Oh my God! Bedpost Confessions is an Austin, Texas-based live show featuring smart storytelling and anonymous confessing. Stories heard at Bedpost Confessions, as well as sister shows Unspoken and Confess, all explore themes of humor, vulnerability, and emotional justice on varying topics. No matter the topic, the highlight of any Bedpost Productions is the participation of the audience members sharing their own secrets in the form of anonymous confessions, which are read aloud during the show. So I grew up a trailer park kid. My mom was a beautiful, blue-eyed, freckled, speckled mess. A junkie, a small-time drug dealer who tended to date men who beat her and sometimes her children. Yeah, it was awesome. (laughs) So, being that she was a small-time drug dealer, we had lots of different people coming in and out of her house. One of the guys happened to be in a circus act. I asked if I could run off with him, and he said no. Even though he dashed my dreams of joining the circus, he would come and stop in time to time to get his fix, and he would entertain me. On this one day, he was entertaining me, but I wasn't in the mood, so he was like, come on, kid, what's up with you? So I told him, this kid's picking on me at school. He punches me, I punch him back, but it doesn't matter. He's so much bigger than me, he holds me down. He said, give me a second. He goes out to his car. Mind you, at this time, I'm seven years old, skinny as a toothpick. My arms are literally longer than my legs, and this guy comes back with a hammer. And he says, do you know magicians are some of the longest performing people on earth? They perform for kings and queens, and they've traveled the world. They've even performed for presidents. Don't you want to be a magician? I said, yeah. He said, well, you got to take an oath. you got to make some promises. I said, okay. He says, you have to promise that you will never tell someone how to do a magic trick if they're not a magician. I said, I promise. He says, you also have to promise that you will never show someone a magic trick when you're not ready to perform it, unless it's in front of a magician. I said, I promise. He said, you're a magician. And I said, yes. And he said, wait a minute. you got to learn a few things. I was like, oh, okay. And then he says, what I'm about to perform for you, not even Houdini ever tried. It's that dangerous. Only a handful of people actually know how to do it, and I'm going to teach it to you. And I was like, okay. He looks around the room. He finds an empty glass bottle and a hand towel, and he wraps the glass bottle up inside the hand towel. He then takes the hammer, and he bashes the glass until it breaks, opens it up, reaches inside, pulls out a piece of glass, and says, you would think this next part is the hardest part but it's not. He puts the piece of glass on his tongue. He begins to chew and crunch it up. Then he shows it to me and he says, this is the hardest part. And he swallows it and he makes a crazy face as it goes down. He points to his stomach and then to his butt and he says, it's going to be very uncomfortable coming out later. And I laughed too. And he said, see, I knew I could make you laugh. I'm going to teach this to you so you can do it for that kid. It will shock him, stop him. He will not know what to do but you got to be big, bigger than you ever imagined you could be, so big. And then he let me know the most important part was the breaking of that bottle. It had to be a perfect break, and I needed to practice it everywhere I went, so I did. All through my trailer park, you know, practice on trees, on rocks, on cars. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, I got those breaks down, and yes, I did cut myself several times, and I promised him I would not tell my mom he taught me how to do this. And eventually, he said, once I had that down, the next important part was to carry a bottle in my backpack everywhere I went. 
And so I did. And on this one day, that kid had me pressed up against the brick wall. The brick was scratching up my face, and he took me down to the ground. He's trying to stuff my head into a mud puddle, and I'm fighting with my little wiry body, trying to keep from my, my head from going under. And it goes on long enough that he gets tired, which gives me a second to get in my backpack, get the bottle, and I stand up and I shatter it against the wall, and it's a perfect break. And I stick it in his face and I say, if you're so tough, eat some glass, eat some glass, eat it! And he looks at me like I've totally lost my mind. I reach down, grab a piece of glass, put it in my mouth, I begin to chew and crunch it up, and then I show it to him and I swallow, all the while holding the bottle up to his face. And he says, you're crazy. And he looks at his friends and he says, let's go. And so they take off walking away from me. But every few feet or so, one of them would turn around and look at me. And I was still holding the bottle up with my best meany-eyed seven-year-old look until they were well into the fade. And so my first magical experience was a success. And uh, if we're lucky enough, we'll have these people come into our lives and they'll plant these seeds. And hopefully, you know, in my case, it got to sprout a little. But sometimes things just wither away. And with magic, for me, it would come into my life occasionally at a party or I wrote it into a few college plays. But it never took true root or significance until I turned age 29. I was outside of Emo's one night talking to a girl I didn't know after a show. And a guy came up and bumped up against her. And she began to scream. And I didn't know what happened until I heard him say on his cell phone, I just went off some girl's skirt. And she kept screaming. So he comes back at her, and I just stood in front of her, and I said, hey, man, please don't make this worse. And he just sucker punches me in the face and takes off running. And before I knew it, I was chasing after him. And once I got up to him, I just took his legs out from under him, and that guy hit the ground. His phone rolled down the street. And then I realized he had three other friends. And immediately I could tell one guy wasn't going to let it go because he gets right in my face, and he says, are you male or female? And I was... Like, come on, man, your friend just hit me in the face. He went up some girl's skirt. Answer the fucking question. Are you a man or are you a fucking dyke? About that time, though, a bouncer came up, tried to break up what was going on between us. But he just hits the bouncer in the face, taking him down, and his friends grab him. So I try to get the bouncer out of it, and that's when Alpha Dog takes me by my head and my hair and bashes my face right into the cement. Lights out? I don't know how long, but I was... But when I came to... I had no vision. I'm punching the air, trying to protect myself until these guys get me down on the ground and they begin to kick and kick me and call me a fucking dyke and kick and kick me long enough that I start to realize I'm going to die on 6th Street. And then my mind goes weird places. Like I'm sure some sorority girl has vomited in this very spot. (laughs) Or some homeless man has probably passed out and pissed himself here and this is where I'm going to die. And I just let go, and I take the kicks, and my body goes limp. But about that time, my friend happened to walk out of the bar and look the direction everyone else was staring. And she could see a body getting kicked, but she didn't know it was me until the guy kicks me hard enough that my hot pink tie comes up and over my shoulder. And so she starts running toward me. And she's begging these guys to stop kicking me, but they won't. And then she finally just takes her four-foot, 11-inch frame, and she lays herself down on top of me. And finally, these guys stop kicking me. She's able to get me up and off the ground, and a car comes around. And as she goes to put me in the car, the guys decide to kick it back up, and they grab me by my legs and try to pull me back out. But we're able to get away. And once we're in the car, they're saying, we got to take you to the hospital. I'm like, no, take me home, take me home. I don't want anyone to see me. Please take me home. So when they get me home, they unlock the door to let me in, and I bolt through, knocking over furniture because I still can't see very well, and I lock myself in the bathroom. 
My girlfriend at the time is begging me to open the door, but I don't want her to see me. I can't make out my reflection in the mirror, and I can just feel that my head is about two golf ball sizes off where it normally is, and I get in the bathtub. During this time, they call a nurse friend of ours who comes over, and he's banging on the door. He's about 6'3", big guy, and he's like, open the fucking door, I'll kick it in. So I open it. And he comes over, looks, you know, checks me out, says, you don't have anything broken. You got a black guy, a busted lip, a contusion, a concussion. We got to keep you up all night. You're going to have bruising up and down your body from the kicking. We really should take you to the hospital. I said, no. And he said, well, if you're not going to the hospital, then you have to talk to the police. So the police show up. They ask me so many questions. By the time they're done with me, I feel like I've done something wrong. And then they ask me to go back to the bedroom so they can take evidence me, three male cops, and a camera, and they asked me to get naked, and I want to die. Three days later, a woman would call and say, I heard what happened to you. Can I please give you acupuncture? Allow me to help you. And so I show up her house, and I get acupuncture, lay on her table for two and a half hours while she needles me and does this weird energy work stuff. And <laughs> I have the weirdest cry I've never had before this moment in time or since. It's just small tears just slowly falling out of my face the entire time. And as I sit up, she gives me some herbs and some pills, and she says, you're going to heal fast, physically faster than you could ever imagine. And I did. I took those herbs that were disgusting and those pills. <laughs> And the swelling went away really fast, and so did the bruising. It was incredible. But she said, mentally, you're in a war zone. You're going to have to figure out how to get up and get on top of it. And I just said, thanks. And I went out to my days and nights, very depressed, suicidal. I had had many beatings as a child, but nothing to the extent of this. And I thought I had left that behind me. And here it all came back crushing me. And it was just, I felt fractured inside. I didn't know how to move through it, and I didn't know how to ask for help. I was struggling. It was like there was just a pinhole of light above me. I didn't know if I could reach it or if I wanted to. My thoughts of suicide were daily. And so as I was struggling through all this, I get asked to do the Transgender Day of Remembrance Conference, and I don't want to do it because I don't want to be vulnerable. And I've had people say these weird things to me because when you have something like this happen, people are scared. They're like, it can't happen in Austin. Like, maybe if you didn't dress like a man, this wouldn't happen to you. Or if you didn't wear a suit, this wouldn't happen to you. Or if you weren't trying to be the knight in shining armor, this wouldn't happen to you. These are exact things said to me. And if you'd done something different, you know, on and on. It didn't happen that far from where we are right now. And it was a hard to take in what people felt. And it was hard to even feel what I was already feeling. And so to move through this and to get up and talk in front of a bunch of people at this time was just overwhelming. And as I go to walk the steps to give this speech, I look over to the right at these chairs housing candles that are signifying all the people that were murdered, all the transgender people murdered that year. And I don't get very far in the speech before I'm bawling. I just haven't had enough time. And as I finish this speech that I don't remember, I know that I'm supposed to walk down into the crowd, and I don't want to because... I'm, I just can't be touched at this time. There's too many fractures in me. People coming at me triggers images of that time, and I can't stop it. I feel like if people get too close to me, I could either have an anxiety attack or maybe just explode into a million pieces and land at the grass at their feet. So I go home from this experience, and I'm sitting, thinking about all the letters I need to write to certain people to tell them I'm sorry. And I feel like such a coward. And I don't know how to move through 
what's happening? And my best friend calls me to say, hey, I just got this great job. I'm moving in two weeks. I want you to come to my going away party. And I don't want to go because it's at a bar. And I show up, but I'm not there two minutes before a man is staring at me. And I don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent. I just know that since that night, I don't know how to navigate the world. I don't know how to be. Every noise causes me to jerk and tremble. And the fear is winning. And I am scared. And hours later, I find myself by him at the bar. He's still staring. So I look at him and I say, do you know me or is there something wrong? And he said, oh, I'm sorry I've been staring. I saw you give your speech at the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and I just wanted you to know that I, you know, I videoed it and I took it back to the news station and I made everyone watch it, male and female, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I got very quiet. And then I looked back up at him and I told this stranger what I hadn't been able to tell anyone, which was that I was struggling, that to be out was so hard, and I felt claustrophobic, and I really appreciated him telling me this. And he said, I'm sorry, I was staring. I said, it's okay, I'm just weird. (laughs) And then we hug, and I go back, and I sit with my friends, and I think to myself, those men didn't kill me that night, but I'm half alive, half dead, and I don't know how to get back. And then I sit the rest of the night with my friends laughing at all the appropriate times and pretending I was present, but I wasn't. And then I went home and I sat down in the dark and I happened to, there happened to be a deck of cards, so I picked them up and I began to do old moves, you know, like one-handed shuffles and all these different like flourishes for magic. And I started to think about magic and I got about 30 or 45 minutes in and then I realized, oh my gosh, like I haven't thought about killing myself the last, you know, 30, 45 minutes. I haven't thought about how pathetic I am or any of these things. And so then I continue to play, and my thoughts continue to spin and spin and spin. And by morning, I formulated a plan. So I go out and I buy a bunch of supplies, index cards, markers, roses, makeup. I come home, grab my jam box with my Michael Jackson music. I make these index cards that say, silent actor, love, wonder, ah, you know. And then I dress from head to toe like Charlie Chaplin. And... I get my roses and I load myself up with all the magic I have and I head out for the city and I stop at this one coffee shop and I set up my music and I'm all ready to go and then I start popping and locking to Billie Jean as Charlie Chaplin and I'm just going to town. And I can see people think it's funny and they're giving me money. I do this all over the city and I get pastries and I get coffee that day and it's just awesome. And I just keep doing this for months and sometimes I'd pass out roses to the men and the women and I would dance with 70 or 80 old women to old timey music and this one woman in particular would lay her head on my chest while we danced to an old Al Boley song and I would just put my head on her little head and we would dance that entire song so sweetly and it was, it was completely what I needed at that time. And I would do magic and gesture to pick a card, but I would never speak to anyone. When they tried to get me to speak, I'd hold up my silent actor card. (laughs) And it was amazing. But eventually I knew it was time to take off the mask. So I went out to 6th Street as myself, dressed up in my finest suit. And I walked into a bar and went up to the most intimidating man in the room, this big old burly Texas guy. And I said, "Uh, sorry, I had cigarettes. I was like, can I bum a cigarette? And he's like, I guess. So I took a cigarette and I disappeared it. I brought it back, floated around and between my hands up to my mouth, he's like, what? <laughs> that guy bought me a drink. We had an awesome night together. And another night I'm doing magic for a girl who starts crying, not because my magic is so bad. 
but because her grandfather did magic and it reminded her of him, so we had this great connection. And then another night I'm doing magic for these frat boys who want nothing to do with me. I mean nothing. And I don't care. I just keep going in, you know, until I knock, I knock this magic trick out of the ballpark. And then they're high-fiving me and chest-bumping me and arms over the shoulder, and they're giving me drinks. And these guys take my phone number, and they're like, we're going to call you. And I was like, yeah, okay. And, uh, and then they called me less than a month later. And they're like, motherfucker, we're having a party. There'll be some booze and some boobies and bands and we want magic, we'll pay you. And I was like, sweet. So I show up and do magic for two, 300 hoodlums. And I'm, you know, chest bumping all night long. And it's fucking amazing. It is fucking epic at a fucking frat house. I don't even know. And, and I walk out that night like fucking just like I had been doing drugs, which maybe I had. And, and I can't believe it because I just am like, what's my life turned into? I don't know. And here's the thing. It would be like magic because I would start to take on the looks, good, bad, and, and indifferent. I would be able to walk the streets again with my head held high, and it would be like magic because I didn't die. I did something that I had always done since childhood. Bounce back. Thank you. Bed Post Confessions is produced by Julie Gillis, Mia Martina, and Sadie Smythe. Audio production is by Ian Danskin. Confess with us at bedpostconfessions.com. Until next time, we will leave you with a few other confessions from the audience. I confess, I recently heard the term lesbian cock slut, and I never identified with a kink so hard. Now to get over my fears of men is another story, mm. which I don't, why? You're a lesbian cock slut. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> yeah. You're on the right track. Yeah. I confess, I once left a guy whose name I didn't know on a lake dock because he was a bad fuck, and I pretended I heard my friend calling me, and I took off on a jet ski, leaving him stranded. <laughs> I still don't regret it. I only count it as a half a notch in my belt. <laughs> <laughs>